So, Greg, uh, we're going to talk about um, how we know what we know, how we deal with that. <laughs> okay, sounds good. So, you want to just uh, elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, uh, and uh, what I would like us to explore today and what I'd like to offer is talk a little bit about how we know things uh, sort of from a first-person perspective. So I got up this morning and said goodbye to my wife as she went to work, and how do I know how I feel about her and my own life world? Uh, there's that perspective uh, on the world. Uh, and then there's more sort of that objective scientific viewpoint uh, that you know science gives us. Um, and how do we put those worlds together is, is one of my uh, primary concerns and, and uh, uh, a topic for us to discuss today. Yeah, yeah. And so, so what's interesting is to put it in the context of um, this is not about, say, the objective experience is better and the subjective is to be rejected or vice versa. But it's actually how we can combine these two avenues and live in the complexity of it and make sense of that. Exactly, exactly. And I think that's one of the things that we definitely need to appreciate, uh, that it is crucial that we have knowledge systems that go between these two uh, perspectives of the first person and the third person and do so in a way that is as coordinated and conciliant, uh, word meaning coherent, uh, as possible. And that's one of my concerns. Yeah, yeah. So, so what are the uh, building blocks of this approach? Right. So the, so the biggest, broadest framework uh, is a framework I developed called the Tree of Knowledge System, uh, which is a worldview uh, that I think allows us to think about a scientific worldview on the one hand, that's that objective third-person perspective, and also is very congruent with a first-person life world and phenomenological subjective point of view. Uh, and uh, I developed the Tree of Knowledge in graduate school uh, when I was in my doctoral program. And uh, it was based on, uh, in part, my struggles as I learned. I'm a clinical psychologist by training. Uh, and as I got into our field, I realized, wow, psychology is really confused. <laughs> uh, and it really struggles uh, with its subject matter. And I think one of the core reasons it struggles is because not too many scientific frames have been built that enable us to move back and forth between, I say, a first-person and a third-person view. Um, and so that's just one of the reasons. Uh, but anyway... Uh, the tree of knowledge is a key building block, uh, and it's an insight that I had uh, really that suggests that we can think about the universe as an unfolding wave uh, of behavior. That's one of the things that it says from an objective perspective. It's an unfolding wave of behavior. Yeah. And the interesting thing that it also proposes is that there are actually planes or dimensions of behavioral complexity, um, and there are four of them in particular. Uh, that the system labels as matter. Uh, so this is the material dimension of space and time and atoms and molecules. Uh, and then there's an, an embedded dimension in that, which is life. And that's the dimensions of cells and organisms. Uh, and in that, uh, there's another hierarchical embedded dimension called, that I call mind. And that's pulled, where cells are pulled together by a nervous system and brain and give rise to what I call mental behavior, which is behavior of animals. And that's also where that first-person experiential system emerges in the brain. And then finally, there's the culture-person plane. Uh, and that's an intersubjective talking plane uh, of narrating between minds, kind of like what we're doing right now. Yeah. So um, uh, even at a very, very broad level, one thing that emerges from that is a sense of the world being a system and so there's the word system, there's the word yep. process, 
yes. um, and the word emerging. Uh, yes. So, so we're talking in terms of uh, of this process, and and so uh, that the understanding is at a level of process and looking at since you know the given the complexity, there's different. There's four different planes that you have that are maybe entry points into uh, the complexity of the system. Perfect. Exactly right. Uh, and I'm really glad you picked up on the idea of emergence and systems, uh, because it is exactly that. Uh, I think we need a, I think our science side needs a framework uh, for emergence and, and particular kinds of emergence. And, and I think if you know where to look, we already have some of those puzzle pieces. Uh, yes, you need to then enter into the emergence of these planes or complex adaptive systems. And what the tree of knowledge says is that we, there are four really key points uh, or planes uh, of emergence that we need to enter to understand the behaviors that are taking place at those domains. At least, and this is from our third-person objective science point of view. Yeah, yeah. So, so as, a, as a human being navigating these planes and the system, mm-hmm. you know, how do you reconcile that first-person point of view with the objective point of view? Or how do they interact, not necessarily reconciling? How do you experience the interaction? Right. Well, the, first, the one thing that we're, the couple things that we'll do, we're going to do, uh, we'll make an epistemological comment or, mm-hmm. or make a note about epistemology, which is, of course, how we know what we know, all right, and what serves as valid knowledge. So there's epistemological. And then there's the ontological piece, which is what is our model or theory of reality of, that exists out here. Uh, so... Mm-hmm ontological map of the ontic reality, okay? Uh, so if we break this up, the epistemological piece uh, is really that we need to understand that the Enlightenment modern science really basically commits itself uh, in terms of its knowledge and language game and what it defines as legitimizing knowledge to a third-person sort of independent knower perspective. And what I mean by that is it really tries to cancel out a first-person point of view and develop an objective description of reality, uh, sort of from a view from nowhere, uh, as it were. Uh, and, and, and it has the model that you make measurements and that you test models uh, based on, on science. But what it really doesn't allow for very well is a language for that first-person uh, experience of being. Uh, and so, so it's epistemology. What it grants as knowledge are, are sort of objectivist measurements and models that are independent of first-person view, and it really fundamentally struggles uh, with uh, achieving a first-person view. I think this is a basic problem. Um, yes, because there is, a, there is a contradiction at the mm-hmm. onset that exactly. uh, we're talking, and you, you're using the terms perspective, and mm-hmm. so uh, first-person is a certain perspective, whereas uh, the um, uh, objective view would want to erase the existence exactly. of perspective. Right, and exactly. So obviously from that place, there's going to be kind of a tug of war. And that's also where we find that, you know, with in, in relativity, that there mm-hmm. is no such thing as right. that objectivity. Right, well, that uh, relativity makes, a, and quantum mechanics both make the point that the measurer and the perspective is embedded in your, even in your third-person perspectives, there's entanglement, uh, in a wide variety of different uh, revolutionary space-time uh, relative positions that, that make our objective reality uh, seem more confusing than Newton thought it was, that's for sure. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, but but it's also the case that even Einstein and 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 uh, quantum mechanics th- th- they're still anchored to a particular kind of worldview. And its task of modern science is really a third person worldview objective viewpoint. It is not really a question of science as to whether or not I love my wife, for example. Right? That's not a scientific question, but it's a very real issue. You know, for me. Uh, <laughs> various times and in various ways, of course, but it's just not a scientific question. We can scientifically analyze my behavior, right? But it's not really a scientific public knowledge canon as to whether or not Greg loves his wife. And so it's, a, and so it's just a, there are limitations and particular kinds of questions that scientific ontology, its, its model of how it works, is trying to get at. And there are lots of things that it doesn't try to get at. Yeah, yeah. And it doesn't try to get at morality, and it doesn't try to get at a lot of subjective reality, and it's just not equipped to. And so we need to be aware of that limitation. Yeah. So, so essentially, with the framework and with the different planes, uh, there's a sense of um, that broader reality, which is, again, kind of a process, a system mm-hmm. that's yep. unfolding. Yes. And, um, and that uh, it's not something that's outside. It's something that we're very much in. And yes. I have that sense of navigating through the planes very much almost as surfing and uh, shifting from plane to plane, depending on what the issues are, in order to better interact with what we want to interact with. That's brilliant. A hundred percent. Exactly. Uh, and, and so if we now move to the first person perspective, like what I would consider maybe a life world perspective or a phenomenology perspective, um, I would say that I can recognize my body uh, as an organismic entity. You know, it is alive. It's engaged in all these cell processes. Okay. But it's also removed from my self-conscious personhood in the sense that I don't control directly. I only indirectly control my body like my heart rate and my digestion and you know I made a comment on a blog I just did you know I got a cyst in my back one time that was very removed from my personal world okay uh and so I think that that's what that's the biological life dimension um and it's quite impersonal although I'm connected to it um and then you have a mental dimension uh which for me as a mammal it revolves that's what gives rise from my first person perspective of my phenomenology so I look over here and I see this green cup, right? Uh, and I have an experience of this green cup. Uh, and, it, and it is the collection of my body and in particular my brain that gives rise to this mental experience, okay? And so this is my, in my terminology, this represents the mental dimension, all right? And I look over here and if I see my dog, my, I can relate to my dog on the mental dimension in the sense that it's mental behavior. We have emotions, we have a relationship, there's an attachment history. That's all part of our felt mammalian mental experience and the mental plane. But yeah. my cannot participate and surf at the level of our conversation, the culture person plane, okay? Yeah. Uh, she, she can't engage in the interpersonal language-based knowledge systems that you and I can. Uh, and so that's the culture person. So we are, as as from my life world perspective, my body is surfing along at the cell life dimension, my mind at the mental behavior dimension, uh, and then my culture person, uh, my personal dimension, which I'm most control of and as an adult most intimately familiar with, my, my aimed self of being. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But so so there's a sense, as you, you gave this very clear uh, example of the multiple planes, so there's a sense of functioning at the intersection 
of different things or in different dimensions. Exactly. Um, and um, and so of, of being aware of them. That's right. That's right. Uh, and, and a lot of people already have this intuition, intuitive awareness. And, and that's uh, the nice thing about the system, uh, the tree of knowledge system, is it does align with a whole bunch of common sense at a multiple different levels. Okay. So, for example, all cultures everywhere have divided uh, the behavior of things up into uh, inanimate things, uh, plant-like things, animal-like things, and person-like things. Okay, so everywhere there's a taxonomy of behavior. All humans have divided the world uh, up into those four taxonomies. So that corresponds to these four different dimensional planes from kind of an objective perspective, right? Uh, and we can also look like at those of us that do like clinical psychology. Okay, when somebody comes to me and I empathize with them and I enter into their life world and I also try to understand with them, I'm, we use a biopsychosocial formulation, right? Uh, we think about them as a biological organism with a genetic history and a physiological process. Or we think about them as a psychological entity, uh, and we put them in a social, broader, social, cultural context. Yeah. So, so there are, uh, these things are sort of common sense in some ways. Uh, the tree of knowledge arranges them in a particular kind of way uh, that I think solves a number of the reasons why we've had a lot of conceptual problems. Uh, but it is... Uh, I, I try to help make it as user friendly as possible, and, and I think it lends itself to that. If it, it, yeah, yeah. So, so there's a sense of uh, uh, formalizing that intuitive understanding we have of mm-hmm. different things, uh, but naming them and putting that into a context of their interaction, as opposed to uh, simply kind of doing it uh, automatically. Exactly. Exactly. And really, what what our, our scientific knowledge, and this is, I really descri- experienced this in, as I went into psychology and discovered what I call the problem of psychology. See, our scientific knowledge is a collection of different language games and systems about particular kinds of problems, but it's not networked together in a way that gives us a picture of a whole. You know? And that's particularly a case in like our field, uh, so that because we have all of these different, for example, paradigms, okay, when you go to graduate school, and I still, I direct a doctor or directed a doctoral program. Our doctoral students to this day have to then uh, talk about their theoretical orientation, okay, as a doctor. And basically, are you CBT? Are you psychodynamic? Are you existential humanistic? Are you family systems? Uh, are you somewhat integrated? Um, to this day, we have these different language systems that sort of compete and don't quite coordinate. Uh, and that was one of my really big concerns of, from an objective knowledge perspective. Why, why and how? Uh, and the tree of knowledge provides a framework, I think, uh, to try to assimilate and integrate uh, the many different paradigms. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. So, so there's that sense of uh, uh, that uh, it's going to be a question of integrating uh, mm-hmm. As opposed to warning, so maybe yes. something about uh, there's a dimension to you know integrating is to find a way to to see the coherent whole without kind of using a proctor's bed of um, you know cutting or stretching too much, but kind of how they fit together. Not quite sure how to uh, want to elaborate on that. Yeah, no, well, actually, I think it's, a, it's very, very important uh, because this is a, a fundamental problem, both in the objective knowledge systems, 
uh, and in our own cells. Uh, you know, as anybody that's a clinician knows, when somebody comes to us uh, and says, oh my gosh, I have all of these problems, there's something going on, especially when they come to us for therapy, right? There's a, a sense that inside the system, there's this conflict, this, this disintegration, these different parts at warring with itself. Uh, and probably the most common war that I would say that I see inside of people is really the war between the mental heart, which is really organized by your emotional system, okay, and your head, which is that personal cultural. Like, I don't like, it's, a, it's a, a disconnect and a disintegration between what the person thinks they should feel and what they want to feel relative to what their heart is telling them they're feeling. And it is that disintegration or conflict that brings, I think, a lot of people into therapy. Um, very often because their body and their mind and their heart has been injured and they don't know how uh, to metabolize that injury. Okay. Uh, so, so we, at a first person life world sense, we see a lot of disintegration in the therapy and a lot of therapeutic healing comes when there is a sense that the parts can be organized together to create some harmonious form, right? Where, where there's a appropriate systematic interrelation of the parts that coordinate them. You know, those things run together, then people feel just differently about their life world and their system. And so, so as you're talking about it this way, uh, it brings me uh, not just to say therapy or, um, you know, human behavior or Uh personality, but to archetypes and myths, like uh, the archetype of the chaos and, yeah. um, and there's chaos, and uh, the god or the gods make order out of the chaos. Right. And so um, uh, uh, shamanic healing uh, is going to be restoring the order that has been lost. And That's right. So, so in that sense, uh, we're coming to, uh, with different means and with uh-huh. different tools, uh, yeah. we're getting to a similar perspective of, of restoring the order of the fragmented world. That's right. That's right. Uh, and, and what I like to, I, I, that's exactly right. And, and what I think the scientific, sort of in what I call enlightenment 1.0, with, they, with its reduction into biology and chemistry and physics, it failed to appreciate the human mental form and the human need uh, to create a harmonized form toward some purpose. Uh, of course, Aristotle talks about our final form and the formal cause, uh, and I, as, as really the original term of psyche and soul is the form of one's life and what is it moving toward and, and what is an optimal form. I think we need to reclaim some of that language and help people understand that, that what their mental interpersonal life is about is about coordinating these parts towards some good that is nourishing and fulfilling. And when that's not happening, they're disintegrated and injured and they feel, they feel the absence of that potential. That's what a lot of mental angst is about. So I I pick up on one word you used, the word coordinating. And Uh so I'm thinking of it that coordinating gives me the dimension of what integrating is. That integrating is not a question of um, uh, putting all of the parts into a blender and uh, mixing that <laughs> something that becomes nondescript, but finding right. a way that they can actually have a process where they can function together. Brilliant, exactly. Uh, and I would use that analogy in both the objective science kind of side and the personal side. So uh, when I talked about like the fragmentation in psychology on the sort of science organization side, I, my encounter with all the different systems was that they were like beautiful 
instruments of music, but they were all playing different systems. You know, they're all playing different tunes. And so when you actually try to put them together, you got chaos. You can't just mesh stuff together without coordination. You need a composer that has some notion about how the different instruments play together to create the overall form of the song, right? Uh, so that's what that coordination process is. It's a fundamentally a process that takes the parts, places them in relation, and, for, and enables their form to unfold in a coordinated or integrated way. Right, and, and, and you use, a, again, a word that you need a composer. And so this is something about uh, we're taking um, that composer role, uh, not coming from a transpersonal authority, but something that is, um, you know, the self or the emergence of the self is being in that composer role that orchestrates the various parts. That's right. And I think that you mentioned shamanic uh, ideas, and I think that evolved into the sort of pre-modern religions. The pre-modern religions were really trying to create, uh, you know, at least a favorable impression of them. Uh, And I am both a critic and have favorable impressions, but they're trying to create that authority, uh, you know, of the gods uh, that orients you towards a way to organize the order in your life and clean up the chaos, you know. Mm -hmm. And fundamentally, I think this is one of the great challenges of our current age uh, is to how to do that, how to create that uh, vision for uh, sort of a a moral authority inside of us, a moral authority that's shared in our collective consciousness that enables us to say, yes, this is what the gods want us to do. Uh, Enable us to create a form of life that we can feel good about and coordinate at a more collective level. I I think we're facing a bit of a meeting crisis here in our current society because we've lost a lot of that. Yeah, yeah. So, so because we cannot find it in the ways that it had been expressed before, because exactly. that corresponded to a world, a reality that is no longer ours. So, right. um, so you know, uh, how can we find a way to express, you know, the experience of that power inside that comes in the ability to coordinate the various parts, so that we make order out of that chaos. That's right. That's, that's, I think that's one of the great, that's a well-articulated way of saying it's one of the great challenges of our time. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, I don't know if you, have you been following Jordan Peterson at all? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and certainly he talks a lot about order and chaos. He projects more masculine and feminine qualities to that than I would be inclined to. But fundamentally, he certainly, I think he's drawn a lot of attention in part because he is highlighting the need for order uh, and, and, and an awareness and he's embracing some of the archetypal mythologies as sources for us in our modern age uh, to embrace. And, and I agree with him that a lot of the archetypal uh, things that Carl Jung mentioned and, and many others in sort of in the psychodynamic world uh, have noted and, and other theologians and, and wide variety of individuals to say, yes, we absolutely need grand narratives at some level. And, and we need we need a new way to relate to those grand narratives that uh, energize them and energize us desire toward them. Uh, and, and so I see us in living uh, our current, one of our meat part of our crises is that we live historically in a postmodern uh, world uh, where a lot of the authority about what is real and what is true good uh, has become so diverse that it's created a fragmented pluralism. And, and I need, that was definitely necessary in some ways. There are a lot of value in, in what I, I think is an appropriate uh, critique of the old knowledge systems, but it's also that it leaves 
uh, sort of a flat, chaotic wasteland. Um, so we need to find integration uh, across. Uh, and for me, what that means is going to the, tra- uh, the traditional wisdom uh, schools and, and approaches and extracting universal themes that we can sort of agree intersubjectively move us toward the good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, that, and, and I believe there are really key and important relatively intersubjectively universal goods um, that are pretty global uh, and are, can inspire, uh, enlighten the soul and get us energized in moving towards them. And, mm-hmm. and my passion about the system is to wake people up to this idea uh, that, yeah, no, the soul can be charged. <laughs> it's not the same meaning, the concrete meaning that people had in the pre-modern world, um, but it's a very, the form of the meaning can be very, very similar, and I think that, I hope the 21st century sees an awakening along those lines. Yeah, yeah so, so uh, if we get hung up on the words like soul as mm-hmm. having some kind of an objective meaning, um, uh, then obviously we get into the area of doctrine, uh, but we can go to the experience and uh, something of what is the experience of when you feel your soul, then it becomes a little more independent of the doctrine or of what creates it. And maybe we can have more of a pathway uh, to exchanging experience when we talk in these terms. That's right. That's right. In fact, uh, I in the past, I would have almost never used the term soul, but actually over the last couple of years, I've really do- dove into Aristotle. Aristotelian formulation, uh, the, the original word psyche essentially lines up with soul, and his use of the term soul as the form of one's life, uh, and he really emphasized, very similar to the tree of knowledge, a vegetative form, which would be the biological, mm-hmm. a sensory motor animal form, which is my definition of mental, and then the rational personal form. Uh, so for Aristotle, for example, he would say the soul is the form of somebody's life across the biological, psychological, and social level. And once I realized, wow, you can utilize that. In fact, that's one of the oldest definitions of psyche. Um, that helps me move from the objective, my normal objective way of soul. There's nothing that lives after the death. And, you know, that's uh, the Christian or even Platonic version of that is not something I agree with at a metaphysical level. But it is absolutely the case that at a language level, the form of your organization biologically, psychologically, uh, socioculturally, it has a very clear form. And, and I think you can think about those forms of being integrated and healthy and oriented toward the good or disintegrated and in distress and not realizing its potential. Those actually create pretty good language systems that allow you to move, for me, yeah. side and out. Uh, so, so to stay with that definition of soul, you know, as you were mentioning it, uh, it leads to the sense that the soul is the a place or the experience where these different planes are integrated or have yes. the potential of being coordinated. That's so, right. So then, uh, so then instead of being, say, an object or something that can then separate from the body and move, uh, it's kind of the process uh, whereby, you know, there is the possibility of combining these different planes that don't necessarily mesh together in a logical way, but that's where they can find a unity or something. Right. That's 100% right. And in fact, I, I use the concept of informational interface. So yeah. informational interface, of course, whenever you're interacting with a, uh, that's a common term. But really, I think of the brain as the informational interface uh, between biology and the mental. Mm-hmm. Brain is where that informational interface takes place. 
and uh, mental into language for us humans. That's the interface between the mental into the personal cultural. Each of those are informational interface systems uh, so that you and I can talk. And as you talk, my mind experiences you in a particular way. And what you're saying, I got images, emotions, and feelings. And then my body translates that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then vice versa. So really informational across those planes. So, so there's something very powerful about that phrase, informational uh, interface systems, because mm-hmm. it's a, that's a very different way of thinking about, say, the old dichotomies of body, mind, spirit, right. of that. is it objective, is it subjective, but that we come back to that notion of planes, and right. that, uh, you know, for these planes to be coordinated or to have uh, some kind of a, of a meaning as opposed to being totally separate, you know, there is a sense of the interface. That's and, exactly right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And, and really, at an objective level, if we go objectively, we go back to the fact that they actually, they just speak different information languages. In fact, cells, you know, speak an information system stored in genetics and they operate at that level and the nervous system speaks a different kind of information communication system that coordinates the animal as a whole. And of course, language is its own information coordination system. So yeah. that's exactly right. It really does change the, the way you think about it. So, so, you know, it's interesting because it reminds me of something. I, I, I coined a phrase that I like to, to play with a little bit. But yeah. the I is for interface, you know, I <sighs> the self. Uh, and that fits so perfectly with that. Uh, yeah, unbelievably. yeah because that's yeah. where the sense of self comes in. As it's just that it's at the inter that that being in that interaction, that's uh, right. And being in the process of managing the interaction is where the sense of self emerges. Completely, a hundred percent. That's brilliant. Yeah. No, I couldn't have said it better. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. And so as we're talking, of course, I'm seeing behind you that you have this poster with the tree of knowledge. So it's very present in the conversation. <laughs> yeah, I realized that uh, halfway through. I was like, oh, yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, so actually, yeah, this is a, uh, if we get it, we probably have to uh, get into that in a different sort of way. But I have created uh, sort of a visual representation uh, of a garden and a tree, uh, which obviously has lots of mythical connections, a tree of knowledge and garden um, that, that really tries to embrace uh, connection to the mythology and the religion as practice and how it would help the soul. If, if you really think about living a, a fulfilling life as moving towards God, the practice of that at a myth level, um, I, I find that very inspirational, uh, even as the sort of metaphysical claims or things that I don't, uh, don't embrace. So I'm, I'm really interested in trying to create an integrative knowledge system that allows us to embrace the best of our science in a consilient or coherent way, allows us to embrace our felt human phenomenological experience of being, and also creates a knowledge system that guides us towards the moral uh, in a way that, you know, uh, can, can help us. Because I think we're in a real crisis point, potentially. Yeah. yeah. Society, we yeah. definitely need some of that. So that feels like a good place to end, but I want to just double check if you have something you would want to add. Um, no, this is a, I really appreciate, uh, you know, how carefully and clearly you followed me and, and offered reframing. It's very nice to be understood. Uh, <laughs> um, so I deeply appreciate that. And this is really, I would just simply say it's sort of a, a doorway into the system. The system, uh, it's taken me a long time to try to figure out a way to communicate this effectively. I'm, I'm starting to perhaps uh, achieve some of that. And, and I appreciate the opportunity to share it with you here. Thanks, Greg. 
This is part of the Relational Implicit podcast. To see more and subscribe to the newsletter, go to relationalimplicit.com.